0: Welcome to the Waste Not What Not podcast. I'm Philippa Ross, human ecologist, enthusiologist, author, and energy healer, bringing you inspirational interviews, news, and tips to rebuild the relationship between people and the planet, the way nature intended by revitalizing our natural resources, minimizing waste, and maximizing human potential. I trust you'll discover seeds of hope for a vibrant future so you can cultivate and transform them to suit your own lifestyle, in order for us to collectively create a world where reverence for the diversity of all life is honoured. You'll find all the show notes in the description and lots more about me and my work at philipperos.com. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, be sure to share far and wide. Hello Wastebusters, welcome to episode 31. Since the rain has been relentless this week, it seems appropriate that this episode focuses on water, more precisely our ocean and its ecosystem. And because it was World Orca Day yesterday, Thursday the 14th of July, a day founded nine years ago by New Zealand marine biologist Ingrid Visser, we'll be talking whales too. Whales are a crucial part of the marine ecosystem, as children's Australian author Chris Collins confirms in the delightful sing along rhyming book called The Things You Can Do with Blue Whale Poo, proving their stinky stuff makes a crucial contribution to the health of the planet. I had the pleasure of listening to it with my four year old granddaughter earlier this week. Well, To be truthful, she was busy yabberting, so I didn't actually hear it in the true sense, but the parts I did manage to capture were brilliant. I'll have to listen again when she's sleeping. The illustrations are by New Zealand artist Bruce Potter, who illustrated the children's adaptation of the classic Whale Rider story, written in 1987, which then became a film. A tale about our connection to the sea and a deep respectful relationship with whales. Something that's very close to the heart of my guest today, Sue Halliwell, a conservationist, writer and marine mammal specialist who's published a book called Being With Whales and Dolphins. It draws on a lifetime love of cetaceans and a deep desire for people to experience a respectful relationship with them by learning to interact in ways that ensures these vulnerable creatures remain happy and healthy. A report from the World Wildlife Fund on whale migration revealed that there's been a 30% decline in the last 10 years, with six of the 13 great whale species now being classified as endangered or vulnerable. A whopping 300,000 are killed every year from entanglement in fishing gear, never mind the damage caused by collisions from increased shipping traffic and disorientation from noise pollution. Top that with 8 million tonnes of plastic that's now entering the sea every year, which is about one full garbage truck every minute. Food is scarce because we've raped and pillaged the ocean floor. And what's left has ingested microplastics. New research shows whales near large cities ingest 3 million microplastics a day. Older whales who have a potentially weaker constitution are especially susceptible which ultimately impacts an entire pod because grandma whales help raise and share their own food with the grand offspring as well as bequeathing decades of foraging wisdom onto the next generation and guiding them to the best feeding spots. I did hear some good news today though. A humpback whale was spotted feeding from a plentiful place at Mungify Heads. In fact fish were seen jumping out of the water. They'd been documented in the area before, as it's a migratory path for whales heading north towards the tropics where they mate and birth at this time of the year. But they haven't stopped for a feed here for a good few decades. These graceful creatures are an imperative part of the marine ecosystem. In fact, for our entire ecosystem, They generate over half the atmosphere's oxygen and capture the same amount of carbon as thousands of trees. In essence, no whales, no world. We have to seriously up our game when it comes to looking after the health of the ocean. Ditch the empty promises for plans to act in 10, 20 or 30 years' time. We are one world and there is one ocean that supports this planet. A world that needs to be treated as a whole. Fingers crossed for world government discussions in mid-August about the need for a new international legally binding treaty to protect marine biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction, which would then result in a high seas treaty being put in place, hopefully, but not likely, with immediate effect. There's more talky-talky in December this year at the UN Biodiversity Conference in December about an action plan to transform society's relationship with biodiversity. So by 2050, the shared vision of living in harmony with nature is fulfilled. We really can't afford to wait for every country to toe the line and agree. We need to each do our bit be responsible individuals and act collectively in order to turn the tide now so those who are dragging their feet get caught in the rip and are forced to ride the wave of change. I believe we the people know what's needed we don't have to wait for governments to tell us the long and the short of it is if we don't there'll be less oxygen for us to breathe. It's hard to stomach the amount of waste we're producing, never mind the volume of life forms that are dying because we've messed with their environment. Last summer, trucks carried 1,269 tonnes of dead salmon from fish farms in Marlborough Sounds to the Blenheim landfill, the result of which was from warming oceans. The country's biggest salmon producer, New Zealand King Salmon, closed three of its farms in the Sounds. It's not just the marine mammals that sustain the web of ocean life. Plankton, including algae, floating plants and photosynthesizing bacteria all contribute by adding carbon to the water, which drives bacterial productivity. Plants and algae draw in carbon dioxide, an important part of combating ocean acidification and climate change. Warmer waters are bleaching sponges, corals and algae. Sediments from farming and forestry acts like a smothering blanket covering seaweeds which stops them from photosynthesizing and creates a film over the reef so spores can't attach and grow. Almost 95% of the kelp forests in Dunedin disappeared between 2009 and 2019. Scientists from Otago University are experimenting with reseeding parts of the Otago coast with Rimurimu rimu by collecting the reproductive parts of wild kelp and in the lab inducing them to release eggs and sperm. The resulting sporophytes are then seeded into spots where kelp has vanished. Local community groups come together to create sediment dams and silt traps and riparian planting. I put a link to the in-depth article about kelp in the show notes. There's a wealth of things that we can do, which I'm sure will be shared in a fascinating webinar that Seaweed New Zealand are presenting on Thursday the 28th of July at 7 o'clock in the evening, called The Way Forward, where they'll be weaving traditional indigenous Maori knowledge with scientific techniques and technology to let us know how we can support ocean and environmental health. There's a link in the show notes. That's just some of the ways the air and water elements are being affected, all compounded by the condition of our soil. It's estimated we spray more than 4.5 billion pounds of glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, into the soils, plants and water systems of our planet. And there are now dozens of genetically modified plant species around the world which have allowed chemical companies to develop a seemingly infinite market for their weed killers. And since Roundup Ready crops debuted in the mid-late 90s, this water-soluble toxin has worked its way into the water within the grains, fruits and vegetables we consume. It's infiltrated groundwater, slowly making its way into our rivers, oceans, air and ultimately our rainfall. It's in our food, breast milk, water, urine, wine, beer, clothing, tampons, hospital gauze, to name but a few things. Not surprisingly, diseases in our domesticated animals, from pets to livestock, have followed a similar trajectory. In fact, just this week, scientists from the University in Amsterdam said they detected plastic in the meat, milk and blood of beef and pork cattle. Apparently, they're baffled, even suggesting a possible cause could be the content of the pellets fed to them or the plastic they're wrapped in. Honestly, I thought scientists might search a wee bit deeper or even be inclined to find a root cause. The answer is glaringly obvious to me. We humans have interfered with nature's process to such an extent that we're now suffering the consequences. And I'm really looking forward to a webinar hosted by Dr Zach Bush at 9 o'clock on Wednesday the 20th of July or 5 p.m. EST on the 19th. About the parallel timeline between the explosion of chronic diseases and levels of glyphosate in the environment, and how what's being discovered about the balance of the soil and microbiome is revealing ways we can make radical improvements to human and planetary health. There's a link to register in the show notes make sure you do even if you can't tune into the live version it'll ensure you'll get a recording which you'll undoubtedly want to listen to a number of times because the depth and breadth of zach's knowledge is phenomenal with juicy nuggets in every sentence now for some really uplifting news the first being that france has banned all garden pesticides next is news that's likely to provide a greater impetus for ocean conservation Due to findings from research on whale song that has shown humpback whales have learned entire song patterns from other whale populations who share the same migration routes. Imagine being privy to the harmony of whale song. While she can't tick that experience off, my guest Sue Halliwell has been privy to the magical powers that cetaceans exude. Her experiences literally changed the trajectory of her life, strengthening her bond and devotion to protecting marine mammals and allowing her to travel worldwide and share her adventures using her writing skills. Hello Susan, it's lovely to have you as a guest today. We were talking off-air, I was letting you know that I have confessed to my listeners before that The podcast is a bit of self-indulgence because it gives me an opportunity to talk to a wide range of people and actually reconnect to people that I've met in the past, yourself being one of those. And we decided it was close to 15 years or so ago. Mm. And it was more on the writing side of things because you did some editing for me for my book and I had absolutely no idea that you were involved in conservation. So it's delicious to discover that, like most of us, we all have many facets. So I'm intrigued as to how
1: conservation came into your life, really. Hi Philippa and again after all these years and um, hello to your listeners as well. Yes conservation has been part of my life or the environment and nature have been part of my life since I was a wee tot and I had a father who was a great lover of the outdoors and became a conservationist, one of the early conservationists really. He's still alive at 91 and still supports a lot of conservation causes financially now because he can't get out there and do it. So he was the one that showed me the way. It was a delightful upbringing, camping, tramping, beaches, the outdoors, just free range. We were free range kids. Uh, Even Mm -hmm. though we lived in Auckland a lot of our teenage years, uh, we backed onto Cornwall Park and we were still free range kids. <laughs> and that was how I learned to love the environment and learn to love nature and learned about nature. I think before you can do anything effective in the world, you've got to learn to love what it is you're working with. And so I came to love the environment, but my particular love was the ocean. Yeah. And I've always felt very at home, very whole by the ocean. And although I wasn't a great lover of fish and certainly not fishing. I can't kill anything. Marine mammals appeared in my life uh, at one stage. And the, the second time that happened, I was hooked. And that took me on that trajectory. So what was the experience? How did they come into your life? Okay, well, there were three very uh, pivotal moments with my journey with marine mammals. And by marine mammals, I have to qualify and say that that's the cetaceans, that's the whales and the dolphins. There are other marine mammals, which are the seals, the pinnipeds and the sea lions and uh, even polar bears and uh, dugongs, manatees. Whales and Dolphins became our great love of mine. The first one that I ever saw was as a nine-year-old. Now, one of the wonderful things about my dad was that he worked for um, an international company. And so we lived all over the world. And at nine years old, we were traveling through to New York and... We stopped in Hawaii and we went to the aquarium there and I saw orca in the aquarium. Now that was interesting. While I was quite captivated by the animals themselves, they were beautiful, they were magnificent. It left me with a queasy feeling that as a nine-year-old, I couldn't have described to you or even the cause of it to you. I now think that that was the genesis really of my uh, conservation work with marine mammals, that that disquiet at those big animals being in such a small enclosure yeah. and performing for yeah. us yeah. as yeah. human beings. And it took another 25 years for me to meet my next marine mammal. Uh, and that was in the Bay of Islands and it was a bottlenose dolphin and I'd gone out with a friend on a whale and dolphin watch experience and everybody else was down the back and sat up the front we found a pod of dolphins sat up the front with my legs dangling over the side and I had the most incredibly intense interaction with a bottlenose dolphin that came up to the side turned stared me straight in the eye watched me for what felt like forever and then disappeared. And that was profound. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't know what was going to happen. But this majestic creature looking me straight in the eye, directly in the eye, I suppose it was a connection of consciousnesses. Interesting you say that because a
0: previous guest of mine, Glenn Edney, I don't know if you've read his book, The Ocean is Alive his was a an eye-to-eye contact with a humpback whale and also i believe paul watson oh, yeah. sea shepherd yet yeah, his was with a whale as well i've not experienced it myself but it is indescribable you cannot put it into words it
1: is that conscious connection that's so true and and my third experience which i'll tell you about in a minute was with a humpback whale and it was an- eye to eye connection as well so with the bottlenose dolphin you know I I returned home and I just couldn't shake this uh, I I, don't know how I would even describe it the transformation within me from having Mm. that consciousness to consciousness experience Mm. and I went home and went back to my teaching job and I decided to join Project Jonah which at that stage uh, was the only uh, marine mammal specific conservation organization in New Zealand and in the world, actually, and it was the forerunner of the work that's been done by Greenpeace and WWF. It was the original. It was formed by a lady called Joan McIntyre in Hawaii. That was well before any of these other organizations start, and it was marine mammal specific. Anyway, so I joined Project Jonah, and you know how the universe goes. (laughs) Within two years, I was running the organization. I'd given up the teaching job. They'd offered me a job running the organization, and there I was. I mean, who would have guessed it? yeah that role was just amazing and it took me around the world interacting with cetaceans uh, and also with the people who worked with them and conserved um, cetaceans around the world everywhere it was just outrageous I really couldn't believe my luck Mm. (laughs) and so as part of that I went to a, a humpback whale conference in Harvey Bay in Australia and on the final day um, I had a whale of a time. It was great. <laughs> and, on the, <laughs> and on the final day, we went out into, um, out to, towards Fraser Island to uh, have a look at the humpback whales that were massing in that area at the time, at that time of year. They come there to breed and to, and to um, carve. And we went out into a bay. There would have been, I suppose, a dozen of us on board this boat. Went out into this bay or found this bay, and I lost count of the number of whales that we could see. They were just everywhere. It was extraordinary. Yeah, it was just amazing. And. Then we had a couple up on our bow and everybody else rushed to the bow, but something told me to stay where I was sitting right at the back. And before I knew it, I was seeing something gray moving up through the water like a torpedo. And of course, it was a humpback whale right at the back of the boat. And it was spy hopping, which is when they put their heads out of the water. Yeah. And it pirouetted around until its dinner plate sized eye was directly opposite my face I could have reached out and touched it had I been able to move (laughs) and I couldn't move and I couldn't speak and I tried to say to everyone hey I've got one I've got a whale right here and I couldn't it was just amazing it looked at me and the interesting thing was that I felt this tingling sensation all over and people have told me experts have told me that You can't be echolocated out of the water, but that's certainly what it felt like. Wow. And I just had this amazing understanding that this whale knew me inside and out. It knew everything that was wrong with me, everything in my past, everything in my future. It was totally accepting of me. It was just a presence of love. And that was all I can explain it as. And it sounds a bit goofy. And some people think it's a bit woo-woo, but it happened. And I can until tell you it happened. You can't dismiss it until
0: you've been there yourself, because I've heard very similar things from different people. And as you say, it's really hard to put into words. And from my knowledge, they communicate through sound, but everything has a magnetic field. So I guess when it was out of the water that you were within its magnetic field. That explains it. it yeah. yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, energy is energy. Well, it certainly was, and it had a, it had a fairly palpable energy, I can tell you. So yeah, from there I followed my joy, really. I remember traveling home from that conference straight after I'd had that experience. And mm-hmm. I have very little recall. Of the two plane journeys that it took to get home because i was again i was shell-shocked something happened to me and i don't know what but i decided just to um to follow this to go with this i'd i'd always been a fairly spiritual sort of person and i Mm -hmm. felt that this was a pivotal point in my life in that regard and i was just going to follow it and even though this wasn't a journey that I had anticipated taking. I felt that I had to, had to follow it. And th- so I that's so. what I've done, really. I think that's a really important point that you make because we are brought up in a
0: world where everything seems to be predestined for us. It's laid out. You need to do this, that, and the other. And we have lost touch with a connection to ourselves. And that really brought it home to you. And it is so, so important to reconnect there. And... Follow your joy, your bliss. And sometimes things are not easy to explain until you have been, you've got to journey through it. And ultimately, it really doesn't matter what transpires. It's the journey, the process that's the important thing because there's
1: a lesson learned in everything, whether it's highs or lows. I fully believe that. Yeah. I fully believe that. And that's philosophy has characterized my life. I met my partner through. My work with project jonah and he was very heavily involved in conservation and together we've had a life of working really with the environment and conservation and with words philippa so <laughs> you know, there were those two two aspects to me and we've worked on cruise ships as expedition crew with both of us as specialists in our particular area and so it's taken me all over the world and uh, it's just been an extraordinary journey
0: another reason for my reconnecting with you is you've just republished a book called Being With Wells and Dolphins. What inspired you to actually get it out there after all these years or even to write it in the
1: first place? (laughs) A book like this had been on my mind for some time. When I say I am a writer, Mm -hmm. what I mean is I have a compulsion to write. Writing has to happen with me and i I cannot stop it. I'm always wanting to write something. I was an English teacher and and then that evolved into doing proofreading and editing and working for newspapers and magazines as a sub-editor. And I became a travel writer. Um, It was a way of funding my travels and and supporting my travels, put it that way. And I'm still an active travel writer. And so I just have a need to write about things and to speak about things as well. You notice I have no problem in speaking. (laughs) Good on you. Awesome. (laughs) Well, it's passion. um, It is passion. It is passion. I just can't keep it inside, you see. So that was the issue. I can't keep it inside. So uh, over the last 30 years, I have had so many extraordinary experiences. Many of them have been good, but some of them have been very sad, you know, to do with um, whales and dolphins. And uh, around about five years ago, I just suddenly knew I wanted to write a book about how to be with whales and dolphins in a way that both the whales and the dolphins and the humans enjoy, but keeps both of them safe. We've got a world that's in crisis, and I don't need to tell anybody that environmentally as well as in many other ways on many other levels and one of the uh, environments that's in deep crisis is our ocean and one of the uh, most profound and impactful contributors to the health of our ocean are our marine mammals and so it's incredibly important to preserve these very vulnerable and very valuable creatures and so all of a sudden, someday, one day, I just knew what I wanted to do. And I sat down and I wrote a sort of a draft, a skeleton for what I wanted to write. And it just poured out of me. The whole structure came together really easily. I thought, I've got to do this. It's time for it to happen. It was sort of like giving birth. It's a really trite way of putting it. But it was like giving birth to something that had been gestating away for a long time. And it had reached its point. And so I wrote it and happened to coincide with me having about six months of very little other paid work on. And so whenever I wasn't working, I just threw myself into it and I launched it on Amazon about three years ago. And then the world (laughs) went crazy and things changed environmentally and on a human level and societal level, all those things. And I realized a lot of what I had written was already out of date and needed to be reshaped and I needed to update statistics. And there was also so much science that we were gaining around keeping our oceans healthy and in particular supporting marine mammals to stay healthy or their populations to stay healthy within that environment, and I needed to update it. So I took it down a couple of years ago, and it's taken me two more years to rewrite it and put it back up on Amazon again. So that's being with whales and dolphins. It's on amazon.com, both in Kindle and in paperback form. Fantastic. Well, it's a definite one for me to get.
0: I love the fact that it's part of the essence of it is about creating a happy, healthy, and a respectful relationship between the whales, dolphins, and humans. Because I think that word has been lost. I mean, it's not just whales and dolphins, but it's all living creatures. Because, I mean, you know my love of the Antarctic and things, and I always make the analogy with icebergs and obviously the oceans. There's so much going on below the surface that we have absolutely no idea and as you say, there's more and more science coming to the fore. But the more we discover, the more we discover how far it goes, like you did with your book. You thought the information was up to date. But it's also the key, I think, with everything that has happened in the last couple of years or so, is about that reconnection to ourselves and to the living world, which is ultimately Absolutely. what the podcast is about, is bringing the two together together and how important they are. So can you enlighten us as to how to create a more respectful relationship with the creatures of the ocean, particularly whales and dolphins?
1: Yeah, that's obviously a very complex question, <laughs> and, and, uh, um, and there's a lot to that, a whole book's worth, in fact. But I suppose, in essence, it's yeah. viewing these creatures as important as ourselves, if not in the environmental situation or conditions that we have in the world at the moment more important and to treat them in their environment as if we were guests in their home yep i think There's that's a, a very big issue there, there is.
0: that mm. we have as humans not everybody obviously but we have thought ourselves above animals and so again it is respecting the value of all these creatures and how important everybody the diversity of all life has a
1: valuable contribution to make to a healthy planet absolutely we seem to as humans think that exploiting the natural resources of our world is our right Mm. And in fact, these resources, and I include all plants and animals in that, and ourselves, of course, are finite, if we choose to make them that way, they are vulnerable, and easily threatened. And really, we have a stewardship role, I believe. It's all about service rather than self gratification, put yeah. it that way, yeah our right. interaction, our relationship with marine mammals must be about service rather than self-gratification
0: mm, absolutely, and as you say, stewardship it's vital. Mm. What makes a happy whale or dolphin.
1: <laughs> can you start with plenty of space to roam yeah Uh, yeah. put it that way and obviously I'm referencing here uh, captive whales and dolphins now an adult orca a healthy adult orca needs to be able to roam 14 kilometers of ocean a day wow and so therefore a pool in an aquarium no matter how big it is ain't gonna cut it no Uh, that's what they need They also, of course, need to have connection with their own kind, because these are society animals. They live in pods, they hunt in pods, they've got very, very strong bonds. So they need to be able to stay with their pods and be supported in that. Obviously, they need food. And we've got issues around overfishing. Humans have really totally exploited the resources of our ocean to the point that we are now compromising the health of Mm. the big ocean dwellers in particular I was reading something earlier on in the week about a pod of orca just off Seattle I think it was was up Canada way, North America way somewhere, the scientists had noted a real deterioration in the size of the animals and yeah. the young seemed to be ordering. They weren't living as they were born and they started to do some research into it and they've discovered that these animals are now so short under condition that the mothers can't support the babies and uh, the pod members are, are getting thinner and thinner and dying off. So... This is not just going to happen in North America. This is going to happen worldwide if we don't continue to manage our fish resources sustainably. A couple of weeks ago, I reported the news that there was 100 uh, blue
0: penguins in New Zealand beached. And the results of the research into that was they were undersized because of the feeding, basically. And, you know, Mm. down in Antarctica last week, I heard that the breeding pairs had increased sixfold along the East Coast. But I'm wary because there won't be, I don't think, enough food those chicks to survive through the winter because the krill is being exploited and we're trying to create marine protection around Antarctica on this for the greed of humans because fish oil is great but krill is one end of the chain and the orcas are the other end of the chain and one is as, as important as the other one is. And it affects, Absolutely. you know, it doesn't matter where it is in the world. It affects the entire ocean. And I think to look at the ocean as one ocean, as opposed to separate things that we can't compartmentalize is another crucial aspect as well,
1: because they Absolutely. travel a long way. They do. They travel half an ocean. Wow. Well, sometimes the humpback whales of Hawaii in particular travel a full ocean on, on an annual basis twice. Um, So, you know, they do have to travel a long way and they do need to be well conditioned to make that journey there and back because they don't feed much on the journey itself. The situation in Antarctica, especially with the the krill fishing, is a relatively recent one and a very serious one, in my view. We cannot understate the importance of the krill populations in antarctica for the health of the whole ocean yeah not just the areas around antarctica so yeah thank you for raising that that's a good one it was 6
0: years ago that the ross sea was given marine protection and they've been trying for a, over a decade and you know there's been promises but this all this geopolitical nonsense that goes on. And it's basically down to the exploitation of things. And now they're even contemplating mining in the ocean. I believe David Attenborough is tearing his hair out. You know, he said, we have no idea what's going on down there. Yet we're quite happy to go in. And because we raped and
1: pillaged the land, it's not OK. Well, we'll try the ocean now. We'll mm. start, start on the ocean now. Yeah, I've got all these people to feed. We'll start on the ocean and, and all this money to make. And so we'll start on the ocean. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, very sad. Um, but, on, I mean, that's far away. On a level that's more immediate to us and possibly more relevant to most people is our interaction with marine mammals, whales and dolphins, in, along our own coasts. Yeah. There aren't many people in New Zealand or even around the world that don't live far from or visit on a holiday a coastal area. So many people in the world at some stage in their lives are going to be close to or even see marine mammals, dolphins or whales. Yeah. And it's what we do at that point of sighting them Mm -hmm. that either supports or undermines the health of those animals. And so what I talk a lot in my book, Being with Whales and Dolphins, about how to interact with them from the shore, in a boat, on a cruise, for example. I give a range of scenarios in which you are likely to come into contact with a marine mammal and what to do to maintain, to support the health of that animal rather than the opposite. Obviously the first one is to give them space, plenty of space, and in New Zealand there are very strict regulations about the amount of space that we must leave between our boat and the marine mammals. And also to uh, not interrupt their path of travel and not cross their path of travel. It's really important that we understand why we need to do these things. I know I won't be the only person who's seen people when a pot of dolphins arrives at a beach, for example, and everyone bails out and everyone gets into the ocean and whatever craft they possibly can to go out and, and interact with these people and all sorts of mayhem goes on. If we can have some people amongst those people who know what they should be doing and can tell others, that's the aim of my book, really, is to inform as many people as possible so that they can inform other people so that those poor marine mammals can escape that experience healthy or even healthier than when they arrive. And interestingly, there have been a number of science research projects carried out by the University of Auckland and Department of Conservation in the Bay of Islands over the years with the bottlenose dolphin populations that exist up there or almost exist up there now. Those dolphins have virtually exited the Bay of Islands now during the summer months when there are so many humans up there. And One of the reasons for that is that that they're not given the time or the space to do what they need to do Mm -hmm. as dolphins or whales. They need to have rest time. What people don't realize is that um, marine mammals sleep in the water. They don't go somewhere else to sleep. If you see a marine mammal swimming very, very gently and regularly, it's possibly asleep, especially if it's beside another one. And they need to be able to feed. They need to be able to suckle their young. And the bottlenose dolphins in the Bay of Islands just weren't being given the opportunities to do that because there were boats around them all the time trying to get them to play. Yeah. And this was the issue. So the, basically the dolphins have left.
0: I'm now up in the Bay of Islands as well myself. And what about oh. surfers?
1: Um, because from what I see on videos and things, they join surfers. I talk in my book about an amazing interaction that I had at Spirits Bay in the far north of New Zealand. Yeah, I was um, body surfing up there and having a wonderful time, not even thinking about marine mammals at all, but really enjoying the experience with a couple of friends. And I came in on one wave and noticed something large and grey in beside me on one side and totally freaked out, actually, because I thought it was a shark. Then I noticed something big and gray on the other side. Of me, and I had two dolphins on one on either side coming in on a wave with me. It was outrageous. They love it. They love the movement of the ocean. They love playing with the ocean. And, you know, I think it gives them a kick to play with the people who are playing with <laughs> the ocean as well. Yeah. And, and I don't know whether they like it because they think, well, you know, we'll scare this one. <laughs> but it, it's a wonderful experience. And yes, that's, the key, though, the dolphins in that situation are joining you on their terms. Yep, yep, and that's, yep. that's the golden rule. The mm. golden rule is it's got to be on their terms, mm. their way, their how, mm. their why, and their wherefore. If we try to manufacture um, interactions between us, we are generally, we're going to be harming them. On the animal's terms, when they join you, wonderful. Just keep doing what you're doing. Yes. Be predictable. Don't change direction. Don't change your path. Nothing like yeah. that. Be predictable and let them come in and go out when they want to. Now, I in that situation there, I hung around in that ocean till I was pretty much blue with cold, waiting for the dolphins to come back again, and they never did. And that's okay. They did it once, yeah. and that's all they wanted. That was mm-hmm. fine. And I think the big thing that comes through for me
0: there is the lack of stress it's the stress that we're putting on the animals that is upsetting their environment so as you say if they come and join us in the surfing it's like well to a certain degree they've got the upper
1: hand and the power of the ocean has the upper hand and likewise when you're in a boat yeah and dolphins just suddenly arrive at your side that's wonderful keep going enjoy the experience don't change your Change your speed if you're going fast is what I always say. Yeah, lower it to preferably a low weight speed, but just keep going, doing what you're doing. Don't change your direction. Don't try to get them to do anything. Don't try to get them to ride your bow waves and that sort of thing. Just keep doing what you're doing. Enjoy it for what it is. Enjoy them while they're there and then let them go. Uh, But when you see a pod of dolphins and you try to zoom your way through the pod of dolphins to try to get them to ride your bow wave, that's when you're going to be doing them some harm. And have you been to Akaroa with the um, Maui dolphins?
0: Because they're
1: in yes, great danger. Yeah. Oh, they're a lovely little dolphin, aren't they? Really lovely little dolphin. Yes. Um, as part of my cruise ship work on a number of occasions, I've actually taken guests out from cruise ships that now come into Akaroa to interact with the Maui dolphins. And it's a lovely experience for them. It's done very well. It's done it very ethically. And I really like the way that the operators down there do that. I have some qualms about the big cruise ships going in to that small harbour when there are these vulnerable populations of Maui dolphins down there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But generally, it seems to be working. It doesn't seem to be any problem with the animals and the ships at this point. I'm sure someone's onto that uh, scientific study-wise. Yes, that's a lovely experience. And do you know, there's such delightful little dolphins. They always remind me of Mickey Mouse with those little dorsal fins. (laughs) And the, the overseas tourists in particular just love them. What can we do as
0: individuals to help the health of the ocean, even if we're not going to visit it? Yes, as you say, respect the space and the animals. Is there anything else that we
1: can do to help? recognize I think that just about everything we do will ultimately impact the ocean in some way now obviously that's with waste disposal but that's not just our solid waste that's all, anything we put down the drain uh, is going to impact our ocean somewhere people don't often make the connection with what they put down the drain going to end up in some form in the ocean. Yep. Uh, it may end up being treated before it gets there, but we've got to realize that the whole world is connected. We're all connected and interconnected. And what we do, what we choose to do, the choices that we make in our own homes and our own lives will ultimately impact the rest of the world, which includes the ocean and everything that's living in it. Do you know, I love now that the children. At schools, the environmental education programs in schools are just so well conducted and the children learn so much from them and they're learning this. They're learning that we're all part of a whole and we all make up an important part of that whole by the choices that we make. Yeah, so just remembering that everything that we do will affect the rest of our world in some way yeah so it
0: is that conscious choice isn't it? it's being mindful of what we're doing you know don't pour the oil down the sink put it in the cup and wait for it to go solid dispose mm. of it another way yeah really mm. and a bleach is another one that just makes my stomach curdle just being aware of these things and making the little mm. changes and over time it does make a
1: huge impact it does and- Our only responsibility really is to look after what we do. Yes. And if every person in the world can take that responsibility, we're not going to have a problem. We're going to heal this world a lot faster than we would otherwise. In my book, I do make a list of suggestions for things that we can do in our homes, in our work, when we're in the environment, to make sure that we support ocean health i think it's really important also to focus on ocean health rather than focusing on the negative ocean destruction what can we do to support ocean health and that might be to keep those oils bleaches all those harmful chemicals out of the ocean
0: yeah i and i love the way you're in that it- we recognize there are problems, but we can't go on just clearing things up. We have to look at it in a different way from a different perspective mm. and consciously be mindful and take responsibility. We can't wait or blame anybody else for what, how we're right. contributing to it. So that is crucial. Has there been anybody or a book apart from your father, as you mentioned
1: <laughs> at the beginning of the interview, that has influenced you in any way? There have been a couple. Um, certainly, Dad was a major influence. I fell in love with Jacques Cousteau as a small child, watching him on television. As, and as a teenager, I was just totally addicted to anything that Jacques Cousteau did. I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau. And well, no, I actually wanted to be Jacques Cousteau's wife or daughter would have done. But, you know, <laughs> I, I loved Jacques Cousteau. Uh, so, yeah, he was a major influence on my life. But I think one of the most profound influences on my life has been my spiritual path and my philosophies. And they have been very, very influenced by a number of people. And one of the things my father also taught me, I'll just go back to that, was that I can do anything. I can do anything. There are no limits. I can do anything. Should I put my mind to it? I can do anything. And he was a living, has been a living example of that. He's been an extraordinary man in many ways. I'm a follower of a lady called uh, Marianne Williamson who wrote a book called A Return to Love based on the principles of a course in miracles. And that's a spiritual philosophy I followed in my life. I still read daily uh, Marianne Williamson's writings because I just so want to firm them in my mind and in my daily practice and in my daily life and uh, so I would have to say she's been very influential because through her teachings I have been able to gain for myself the strength and the, the fortitude and the tenacity and the perseverance and the understanding to continue with a path that hasn't always been easy or logical or reasonable Wow. Do you know what? I booked myself a ticket because she's coming to Auckland
0: at the end of July. Me too. I'll see you there. Yeah, because it was actually on my birthday, and I really splashed out and bought myself lunch with her as well. Oh, well, great to see you there. Absolutely. (laughs) So I'm actually put it out to the universe, and I put a request in to see if I can do an interview with her. So that would be fantastic.
1: You can only ask Philippa, and I know you. If it's (laughs) gonna happen, you'll be able to make it happen. I just love the
0: synchronicity. It's given me such chills that you're talking about, Tara. What an influence, yeah. And I've I've known about it for years, and it's interesting. Somebody put up a second-hand version of A Course of Miracles, and it's something that I'm integrating. As well in my life. And I hadn't actually realized that she, a lot of her work is with helping with foods and feeding people as well. Because again, that's
1: another aspect that you don't hear about. You don't hear about. That's right. A multifaceted work that she does. Yeah. Uh, she is an extraordinary woman. I feel so blessed to have found her first book, I think it was, um, A Return to Love, yeah. when I was in my early 30s, and that was over 30 years ago now. And I read that. And I thought, I have to get onto this Course in Miracles thing. And I have to keep following this lady because that feels right. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I'm supposed to follow. And I'll just keep focusing on that. And the rest, hopefully, will all fall into place. As it has. Here I am. I'm still alive. Yummy. And you're doing what you love on so many different levels, which is fantastic which is what Marianne Williams says you know we don't do it for the money we don't do it for the prestige we don't do it for anything like that yep. we do it because yep. of the love that flows through us to others absolutely mm. and just
0: like yourself you know this is why I'm doing this podcast because it brings everything together that um, and being able to talk to extraordinary people like yourself do you have a favorite quote
1: that keeps you inspired? Mm, yes, um, I do have three. I'm never Go just a one person. So <laughs> it has to be three. <laughs> just one. <laughs> um, and the first one is one that I love. And it's actually a quote from the Bible. And it's something that Jesus said about I am that I think I am. And you will notice that my email address is powerfulwords at extra.co.nz. And I learned early on through Marianne Williamson's work as well, that what I believe about myself and what I say to myself and what I say to others and what I believe about others manifests. And so whatever I believe I am, and this ties back to my dad as well, whatever I believe I am and whatever I believe is possible, and however I believe that I can be impactful in the world, that will be. So that's one of my first ones. That humpback whale that I told you about that spy hopped at the end of the boat that I was on and we met eye to eye. It was a profoundly spiritual experience. And during that experience, there were two words that came into my mind and they were in my mind and they were outside of my mind. And they were just, it just, they were soft and they were booming at the same time. And they were nothing matters. I didn't know what that meant and it's only through doing the course of miracles and continuing with that over 30 years that I have come to understand what that means that whale knew the path I was on girl <laughs> yeah. and it told me where I was going to end up mm. that nothing matters except that we love so that came to me from a whale and the last one came to me from my mum who died early and she she died in her early 40s One of her sayings was, this too shall pass. Mm. And so whenever things get tough, I just know. And even when they're good, I just know this will pass. So if they're tough, just hang on in there, girl. Keep going. You'll survive it. You always have. And if it's good, this too shall pass. Make the most of it. Those are my three quotes, really. I, I am that I think I am. Nothing matters except that I love. And this too shall pass.
0: Beautiful. What a way to live. But... Worse well, most of the time. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. That leads into my next question. It's like, I'm sure you experience a funk. What do you do to get yourself out of a funk?
1: Oh, yeah. Those flat times, those um, down times, those times. I mean, I've I've had bouts of depression in my life and I see them now as learning experiences and growth experiences. I don't see them as anything other than that, really but i know on a, a surface level i suppose nature is always the place that i go for my healing of anything because in nature i i can see that i'm part of a whole yep. and i can see that i'm a not alone and be important as a part of a whole and so that's always very healing for me but i always know and this again comes from following the practice of a course in miracles that if i'm ever in a funk then the problem is with me it's not about what anyone's doing, what anyone's saying, any given circumstance on the outside, it's what's going on inside that's the problem. That's what I have to deal with. And I have discovered that if I can go into that feeling, if I can feel that funk feeling, if I can identify the fears that are going on at the base of that funk feeling, if I can bring them to the surface, if I can feel them and then I have a um, a, a practice of letting them go and, and giving them to the, the higher power that I believe guides me in my life, that works. A, a funk is always an opportunity for growth. The thing that I picked up there that's really important is to actually...
0: Feel it and not to push it down because it is teaching you something about a response to something that's happening outside and your body is saying this isn't sitting with me I'm out of whack and there is a learning yeah. experience and we that's don't sweet. have to analyze what it is because it doesn't matter so much it's just an op- giving it an opportunity to express itself through your body and exactly. allowing it to come to the surface because we can't all be happy chappies all the time is unrealistic no and as you say letting it go and letting it be and it will transpire That's exactly right so if you I was your fairy godmother and gave you an opportunity
1: to change one thing in the world what would it be and why yeah it's an interesting one Um, I'd quite like to have you as my fairy godmother. Can I just say that (laughs) by the by anyway? You'd be a really fun fairy godmother. (laughs) I'm very cautious about wanting to change anyone or anything. I'm very aware that the only person really that I have a right to change is myself. I can certainly make suggestions to others as my book does. But the only person I have a right to change is myself. But having said that, The one thing that I would like to influence in the world is kindness. Now, by that, I'm not talking about uh, generosity. And I'm not talking about giving so much as being of one kind with the rest Mm -hmm. of life. Wow. Yeah. Um, And and there we bring the respect back Mm -hmm. in because... We are of one kind. We're on this planet with a whole heap of life forms in various forms. Some of them are human, some of them are animal, some of them are plants, some of them are rock, some of them are, you know, bugs underground. They're all life forms. Mm. We're all of one kind. We're all that life force. And if I could just help people to understand that all these other forms of life are of the same kind as us on a certain level, that's what I would like to change because when you see something as a reflection of yourself, Mm -hmm. you treat it differently. What a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much for your time.
0: That was absolutely... Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) And (laughs) such a rich source of food to think on. Thank you.
1: That's my that's my pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you. I'll look out for you at Marianne Williamson's Yeah, that's um, that's incredible um, presentation. <laughs> you take <laughs> okay. care. Cheers. Bye. Thank you. See you later. Bye.
0: Wasn't that a delicious example of how, when you trust your gut, irrespective of what others think, you end up living a fulfilled life doing what sparks joy in you. Next week, I'm joined by Trish Allen, whose passion is permaculture. The basic philosophy of earth care, people care and sharing has formed the foundation on which she's lived her life and contributed to her community as Chief Wastebuster. I too am in my element bringing this podcast to you week on week. Make sure you follow or subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. And if you have time, I'd be truly grateful if you could nominate me in the Sustainable Business Network Awards for the Sustainability Superstar and or the Communicating for Impact categories. Let them know how week on week I share inspirational news and guests that gives you, the listener, a diverse range of ideas to create a more sustainable future for the health of people and the planet. And don't forget to get in touch if you have a subject or guest you'd like me to consider. My email is info at So until next week, dig deep, open your mind to a world of possibilities Live life with a generous heart and take steps to minimise waste and maximise your own potential.